This week we are uh, in installment four of our series. I hope for those of you who have been joining us this past month that this has been a helpful series. I hope it's triggered and fostered some uh, rich discussion that may not normally happen. That's really the goal, I think, one of the main goals, I should say, of this series is creating uh, a space for us to talk about uh, a topic like this that we're probably not going to be uh, creating spaces otherwise to talk about. Hey man, you want to sit and get some Starbucks and just talk about like where you're sinning? Uh, you want to sit and talk about the Levitical priesthood and that, you know, we just don't do that. And so I hope that this is a, a helpful series for us to walk through. But this morning, we are going to plumb the depths a little bit and talk through the sacrificial system. Uh, and we're going to hang out in Leviticus, specifically Leviticus 4. This too will pass for those of you who have read Leviticus. Um, but I, th- I think it's going to be rich. I think this is going to be a sweet morning and a sweet time of study and discussion together. So I'm going to title this morning's message, Sin and the Sacrificial System. And uh, we're going to jump in and see what the scriptures and the Holy Spirit using the scriptures have to speak to us. But before we do that, let's settle ourselves, let's quiet ourselves, and let's present ourselves anew to the Lord this morning. And where there's areas of flutter in your soul, areas of anxiety, areas of joy, areas of delight, um, whatever those are and wherever those are, just bring those back under the lordship of Jesus. The psalmist says, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And so good shepherd, we look to you this morning. And we look to you as the one who gives us our daily bread. And we look to you as the father who tells us, don't worry about tomorrow. But focus on today, kingdom today. So we say yes to all that you have for us today, both this morning and over the course of this day. We say yes to our daily bread. We say yes to uh, the portions of our souls where you long to Give us encouragement and energy. God, we say yes to your lordship anew this morning. And we pray that as we study your scriptures and as we sit under them, we pray that this would be a sweet space. We pray that you would teach us and guide us into all truth. Uh, Would you shepherd our souls in the way that you see fit? Would you speak to us both generally as the young adult family, but would you speak to us specifically? Would you uh, hit the bullseye in our souls? That thing that we need to hear this morning. Holy Spirit, would you speak that specifically to each and every one of us? And we pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, and we welcome you here. Holy Spirit, come. Do what you want to do. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Uh, Well, we got a bit of a truncated timeline this morning because it's New Life Next, uh, so we're going to be wrapping up here a few minutes early. So I want to jump right in, actually, to a discussion question. I want us to discuss something together and till the soil a little bit, wake us up a little bit, and and begin to wrap our minds around the topic at hand this morning. And here's the question that I want us to chat through. How would you explain what the sacrificial system was and what it was for? You know, just an easy question, shooting the breeze, all that. Uh, go ahead. If you're not at a table with some people, uh, go sit with some people. Uh, let's invite others to our tables as well. Chat through this question. How would you explain the sacrificial system? What was it and what it was for? Ready? Go. Enjoy discussion. 
All right, let's pick this thing up. So um, I think I think some of the most robust and beautiful theology is actually found in the book of Leviticus. Uh, I think Leviticus sometimes gets a bad rap um, because you get so in the weeds of like these different sacrifices and these different laws and what do we do with that? And yet we were speaking at our table like the sacrificial system was um, you know a means to point to Jesus, which we'll see here in just a couple minutes, but. Um, you know, if we look at the sacrificial system through a Christological lens, then all of a sudden we see this beautiful world of theology, this ecosystem of theology that's alive and that's beautiful and that's wonderful and that really um, informs much about, uh, surprisingly enough, the way that we as the people of God can and ought to live today. And that's not to say that we should be sacrificing animals today because the Bible is explicitly clear about that. But I think it really gives us this beautiful framework to view um, the ways of the faith and the journey of faith and even Calvary um, through. And Leviticus teaches us, uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, it doesn't just teach us about sin, but it actually teaches us about grace and it teaches us about salvation and it teaches us about life uh, amidst kind of the gruesome and gory details sometimes that we get stuck into as we read it. But, um, you know, Leviticus is filled with a number of different kinds of laws, a number of different kinds of sacrifices. But I want to hone in specifically on Leviticus 4, um, which talks largely about the sin offerings. That when the people of God or when specific individuals committed a sin or a series of sins, these were the sacrifices that they offered um, and then in looking at this, we'll um, take this more uh, into a Christological leaning and see what the New Testament has to say about this kind of stuff. But let's go to Leviticus 4. Can you guys hear me okay or am I too quiet? Good? Okay, great. Just making sure. Leviticus 4, verse 1. Uh, be still my heart as you read Leviticus. Um, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying... Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, so he's giving a specific audience here, thus bringing guilt upon the people, so a priest sins, bringing guilt on the whole people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. And then Yahweh goes into detail about how that sacrifice is to be accomplished. We won't really go into that. But we're going to jump into Leviticus 4, uh, skip over to 13 to 14. Uh, he's speaking about a different audience here who commits sin. If the whole congregation, now not just the priest, but the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, that's the second time we see that word unintentionally. And the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not be done. And they realize their guilt. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd from, for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. Skip to verse 22, another audience that Yahweh is talking about here. We got two more. When a leader sins, right? So priest whole congregation, now a leader, doing unintentionally any one of all the things by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish. 
and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in its place, uh, where they killed the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Everybody say sin offering. Sin offering. Final passage, uh, Leviticus 4.27, the final audience uh, of this chapter. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of these things, that by the Lord's commandment ought not be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him. He shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin, which he has com- committed. Okay, so Leviticus 4, we see four different kinds of sin offerings and not even necessarily four different kinds, but four different audiences, four different people groups that are um, the recipients of the, um, uh, the sin offering that's being committed. So the grace that's being extended through this sin offering, we have four different kinds of people that are atoned for here. And we'll put this up on the screen. First, we saw that there's the priest, that the priest carrying this holy mantle of anointing, this priest being the mediator between the people of God and God himself. If he commits a sin, then uh, the whole congregation actually is to blame. And so this big sacrifice, this is actually the most intense sacrifice uh, of Leviticus. Is for. That was accomplished, um, but it's for the priest and for the whole people. The second one is for the whole congregation. The third one's for the, whole, for the leader, and the fourth is for the commoner. Um, but there's four different audiences, four different people groups that are affected by these sin offerings. And what we see through this, I think, is a couple things. Number one is that there was no one in the nation of Israel that was left untouched or uh, uncovered by these sacrifices. Uh, Yahweh, in giving these directives to Moses to articulate to the people of God, Israel, he leaves no one outside the covering of atonement. But he says everyone in the congregation of Israel, he may be holy, he may be the ambassador and the mediator between God and man. He, it may be the whole congregation at large. It may be someone in authority. It may be just the common person who really has a little reputation or a tarnished reputation among the people. Everyone in the people of Israel, if they are to put this sacrificial system in place, they can be atoned for. So no one is left out. And uh, no one is excused for sin outside of the sacrifice. But we also see another thing. Um, Did you catch that there was a word that was articulated in each of these four sacrifices? It was the word unintentionally. If anyone unintentionally sins, unintentionally sins, unintentionally sins. We see this four times with each sacrifice. Yahweh is very specific. If there is unintentional sin, it can be atoned for Interestingly enough, and we're not going to get here this morning, we're going to go there in the weeks to come, but interestingly enough, there is no sacrifice in the entire sacrificial system or the law for high-handed rebellious sin, for mutinous sin, for sin that uh, intentionally and deliberately sins against Yahweh. It's not there. It's all, this is prescribed for unintentional sin. And actually, the New Testament has something to say about high-handed and deliberate sin, which we'll get to again in the weeks to come. But we see that the entirety of the people of Israel are covered through this sin offering. Uh, and we see that these cover the unintentional sins. And really, I, I think when we look at the sacrificial system at large, both how it's treated with these 
um, uh, groups of people and how it's treated really through the New Testament and this, the narrative of Scripture at large, I, th- I think we see this beautiful, theologically significant uh, principle at work and at hand, and that's staring us right in the face. Uh, I would suggest that the sacrificial system shows us that sin and all of its destructive effects have to go somewhere. That uh, there are ramifications and there are co- uh, not just consequences, but, but shockwaves of sin, destruction that emanates from sin that has to go somewhere. That sin doesn't stay up here in eth reality, but it actually permeates our concrete situation. That when there was sin committed, both then and now, that that sin and its destruction has to go somewhere. And I think we can sometimes um, gloss over this concept, but that's what the sacrificial system was. The sacrificial system was given by Yahweh to the people of God to be a location in which sin and its destruction funneled into, and where the shockwave shot out of and went into, the lamb, the goat, uh, the bull, whatever was being offered, a location for sin and its destruction to be absorbed into. This isn't just a sacrificial system like we can be led to believe sometimes. This is just an appeasing of an angry deity. Okay, Yahweh is mad at us. We kind of get just got to like slay some goats and whatever we have and, and, and send them his way. No, those were the religions of the Mesopotamian world in which Israel lived in, but this was not the sacrificial system of Israel. Instead, the sacrificial system of Israel was a response to their sin and a location in which sin and its destruction could go to so that the people of God could be cleansed and have open relationship before Yahweh. This was not, Yahweh, okay, you're mad at us, here you go. But this was Yahweh in his goodness and grace offering a place for sin and its destruction to go. Are you with me? We can rearticulate this uh, concept and say it this way, that sin does not simply offend God on a spiritual level but also invades and wreaks destruction on our soul and situation. That when we're dealing with sin, and when we're talking about sin, and when we commit sin, we're not just offending Yahweh, though we are. Um, But there is also something concretely um, tangible that happens when we sin, that, that sin and its destruction go somewhere. And um, the sacrificial system, again, was a response to that. But we see this, I think, in an interesting light, even in modern science and psychology. This concept that sin and its destruction has to go somewhere. Uh, You know, we see through a copious amount of studies um, that have uh, been submitted recently that discontentment and greed, we'll clip through a couple of these, discontentment and greed are linked to depression and mental health issues, actually a copious amount of mental health issues, that when one harbors discontentment and greed and that ah, that reaching, that striving for things, that discontentment, then mental health and depression sets in. Um, Pornography, literally, we see rewires the brain, that there are uh, physical, neurological things that happen when someone engages Uh, in pornography that rewires and restructures the brain. Sex with multiple partners is linked to self-medicating and addictive behavior. Like these things, these shockwaves that are being, uh, you know, sent in, 
excessive envy in comparison is linked to causing depression and even suicidal thoughts and behavior. I would suggest that modern science is putting words to and a picture behind the destruction of sin going somewhere. That if there is not covering and if there is not atonement and if there is not uh, a location in which sin and its destruction can go to, it's going to go into us, the one committing the sin, the shockwaves of sin and destruction. Um, and so I want to hit pause real quick, and I just want to talk through this. I want to um, discuss this and nuance this at our tables. And here's the question. Um, why do you think it's important to understand that the destruction of sin must go somewhere? Why is that an important theological concept in the first place? What does that mean for us? Um, what are we to do with it? And why do you think it's important? So we'll take about five to ten, talk about this, and then we'll pick this up uh, here. So enjoy your discussion. Go. All right, let's pick this thing up. So it's only in Jesus that the sacrificial system makes sense. Um, and it's only in the wake and in the, through the lens of Calvary that we can really understand um, what Yahweh was up to in the people of Israel. Otherwise, we in- inevitably and inherently view the sacrificial system as this grotesque, maybe unnecessary, gruesome, um, overkill kind of a thing. But instead, when we look at Calvary and we look at Jesus and then look backwards upon Torah and upon the sacrificial system, which is the intent, all things that Israel was doing, all things that Yahweh was at work in the nation of Israel, all things that he gave them, those things were, uh, as the scriptures say in the New Testament, the types and shadows of things to come. So it's only when we look at these things through the lens of Calvary that they really make sense because Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Early on in the ministry of Jesus, actually right before it began, uh, John the Baptist is going and he's baptizing people. And uh, it says in, in John 1, all people were going out to him. That throngs and multitudes of people were going and were being baptized by John. And then Jesus arrives and he is about to ask John to baptize him. And what are the words, if you can remember, that come out of John the Baptist's mouth when he sees Jesus? The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Like this was John's descriptor, his primary descriptor and his primary framework in which he understood Jesus, the Lamb Okay, what, what do we do with that outside of the sacrificial system? Jesus was the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Later, decades later, in fact, in Romans 8, uh, the apostle Paul writes uh, th- this concept uh, in another line of thinking. He says in Romans 8, three verse, uh, Romans 8, verses 3 to 4, he says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a what? Say it strong. A sin offering. 
Christ was the sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul makes it explicitly clear that Jesus was the sin offering, that this whole thing that Yahweh was up to, the sacrificial system, the law, it was all pointing towards and finds incarnational substantiation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the sin offering for us. And in the same way that the sacrificial system provided a location of absorption, a location for sin and its destruction to go into, Jesus uh, is that uh, primary location and the culmination of this location for sin and its destruction to be absorbed into. Indeed, we see that sin and its destruction were absorbed in Jesus's death and conquered in his resurrection. That Jesus absorbed and took into himself sin. This wasn't just uh, Jesus stepping onto the scene and saying, okay, Yahweh, Father, because you're mad at these people, I'm gonna step in and I'm gonna die. And okay, great, then you'll be appeased. But he was the location of absorption. Like he took on sin and its destruction and all its effects, which is why uh, we see in the gospels, the father turning his back on his son on Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This frantic prayer of Jesus is because he himself took on sin and absorbed sin and its destruction in the flesh and in absorbing it in his death. Only then was he able to conquer it in his resurrection. We see the anonymous author in Hebrews 10 put it this way. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, that is, the sacrificial system, make perfect those who are drawing near. Otherwise, uh, they would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year which indeed was its purpose. For it is impossible for the blood of goats to take away sins. And then jump to verse 14. He brings this argument to a close when he says, for by a single offering, he, that is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus was the location where sin was absorbed. And now those who put faith and pledge allegiance to King Jesus find that their sins are fully and completely atoned for, covered, and not just covered, but absorbed and conquered in Calvary. Guys, again, this isn't just something where Jesus is appeasing an angry deity, but this place where he took on sin and its destruction on our behalf so that we may be perfected for all time as we are sanctified, this paradox. Um, And so the great question then, as we look at the sacrificial system and we look at Jesus and we look at Calvary and we look at this absorption of sin and destruction and this conquering of it, um, the great question is, how now shall we live? What ought our response uh, be? And we see in the New Testament that we can kind of paraphrase it here, but our response to the sin offering of Jesus Christ is simple. It's to obey Yahweh and to keep his commandments that the only proper and appropriate response to the precious blood of Jesus being spilled 
and to the Son of God being the location in which sin is absorbed. The only response is for us to pledge allegiance to this king and to obey him and to keep his commandments. Uh, 1 John 2 says it this way, I am writing these to you so that you may throw in the towel, coast, take it easy. No, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments, that somehow us keeping his commandments and obeying Yahweh uh, verifies and justifies our relationship with him and puts skin and bones on our confession of faith. We have been cleansed. We have been redeemed. The location of sin is Jesus Christ. Sin has been uh, uh, absorbed and conquered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now the call of the greater New Testament and scripture at large is to obey and keep in step with Yahweh. Pledge your lives to him. Obey him. Give the entirety of your heart, soul, mind, and strength to him so that we may walk in his ways and prove to be his disciples and those whom we uh, have relationship with Yahweh. This is the great invitation of the New Testament. Your sins have been covered. Your sins have been cleansed. Jesus took it on for your sake. And now let us walk righteously. Let us live according to his will and good purpose. Amen. Amen. So Lord, would you do it in us? God, would you make us a people who are obedient? Would you make us a people who are steadfast? Would you make us a people uh, who live for you and you alone? We thank you, Jesus, that you were uh, the lamb, the spotless lamb who took away the sins of the world. We thank you that you in your flesh absorbed sin and conquered it in your resurrection. And so we, we, we love you and we serve you and we pray that every area of our lives would be given as a, as a love offering, a love sacrifice to you, that we would worship you with everything that we have and that we would indeed fulfill the greatest commandments to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in being loved, we would love our neighbors as ourselves. Grant it, we ask. And would you send us out of here in joy and in peace and in life and in obedience to King Jesus and what he's done for us on Calvary. Excuse me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everybody said, (laughs) amen.